This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. And welcoming back after last week's absence, our digital director, Mike Hogan. Jeez, way to blow up my spot. You know, maybe people <laughs> wouldn't have realized that I skipped a week, but anyway. We yes, know we, te- we we teased you last week because we were talking about the Irishman and we were missing our Irishman, so you can uh, you can weigh in accordingly now. <laughs> okay, except I still haven't seen it, so anyway, yeah. Um, so we we're missing Richard today. He's off to screening, um, but we have a lot to talk about with The Joker, or sorry, just Joker, it's cleaner, um, which is out and making tons of money and hanging under that Oscar buzz it's had since Venice. Um, so we're going to get deep into Joker and Best Actor, which are kind of go hand in hand. Um, But first, we have a couple other things to catch up on, including the trailer for Richard Jewell, which is this year's patented Clint Eastwood surprise move of, hey, I have a movie. It's going to be ready in December. So get ready. Will it win Oscars? Who knows? And like many of his recent movies, it's about based on a true story about this man, Richard Jewell, who was uh, falsely accused of the 1996 bombing in Atlanta during the Olympics. Um, does this feel to you guys like a Clint Eastwood movie like Sully or 1517 to Paris that will maybe go nowhere? Or does this feel like an Oscar-y thing we should be getting ready for? Um, I, so I saw the trailer last night before Joker. And my main takeaway is that um, Paul Walter Hauser, who plays Richard Jewell, is the guy from Black Klansman who plays one of the evil, you know, KKK guys. And then you just reminded me before we started that he was also the sort of dumb guy in I, Tanya. So on the one hand, that's he's those are good performances that sort of sneak up on you. So that sounds yeah. good. But on the other hand, it's like a little hard to imagine him carrying like a dramatic Oscar role. But maybe he will do a great job. Um, and my other feeling about it is basically, you know, this this story, by the way, it's based on a, a story from 1997, Vanity Fair story by Marie Brenner, who I've worked with for a long time, who's an amazing journalist. But, you know, the Richard Jewell story is basically this guy got crucified by the media falsely, right? Um, and uh, and so it does feel like Clint Eastwood weighing in with a kind of like, how much do we all hate the fake news um, uh, movie? 
which <laughs> may, which I wonder how if the Oscars are. You know, on the one hand, the Academy theoretically doesn't like it when Trump says fake news. On the other hand, every single person in Hollywood has had an article written about them where they're like, "I was taken out of context." You know, so who knows? <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's interesting to compare that to Itania, which is also exploring 90s uh, tabloid journalism sort of stuff. And, and like this guy having just the perfect face for the figures that that sort of we were discussing at the time, uh, you know, in the tabloids or or what have you. I don't know. It, lo- it looks it looks a uh, I, what we've learned, right, is never underestimate Clint. Like, unpredictable, yeah. but, like, don't count him out uh, at, at any turn. So yeah, yeah, I mean, you would say, like, okay, well, it's been a long time since Million Dollar Baby came in and, like, won Best Picture the last minute. But American Sniper was not that long ago and was such a similar, like, last-minute thing that really made its way through December. Like, I feel like I've said multiple times, if the Oscars had been two months later that year, it would have won Best Picture. So you just don't know. Yeah, it's this, uh, what, December surprise? Clint's December surprise. Um, (laughs) So here it goes. He's good. You don't know until the movie comes out if it's going to be, like, really great or, you know, like, if it's going to be The Unforgiven and Million Dollar Baby or is it going to be The Mule? So I don't know. I mean, but, but you can't, like you said, you can't count them out. We shall see. Yeah. So elsewhere, before we get into Joker, uh, Mike, we uh, know that you saw Judy. and We've been kind of uh, saving a spot for you to share your thoughts, which I still haven't managed to see it. So I'm going to be the last one. Um, but uh, when, when you caught up with Judy, how did it stack up to everything you've been hearing about it? I thought the movie was better than I had been sort of led to believe. Um, and I thought she was really very good. I think, you know, somebody coming out of the theater was saying like it's it's impossible ultimately to play to play Judy and and I have to say like um my mom and my aunts and my grandmother were all huge Judy Garland fans so I was aware that like the thing to listen to is Judy Garland at, live at Carnegie Hall if you want to kind of compare and it's just tough you know it's like it's like why no one plays Elvis like you cannot be as charismatic and sort of incredible as Elvis so at some level you know, that's a challenge. On the other hand, I think she does a really great job. And I think that there's a nice, interesting blending of sort of the 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 Judy kind of fragility story where you're rooting for her to overcome her demons and her difficulties. And frankly, the Renee, you know, story too, right? You're sort of watching the movie being like, come on, Renee, like do this thing, nail it. And, and I think she basically <laughs> does. Um, and she goes through certainly every single emotional type of thing that you would want someone to go through in order to hand them a best actress Oscar statue. And I think that she, you know, she, I guess she sang live. I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure I buy it just from the way it sounded, but she certainly sang it all and she sang it perfectly well. I love the scene with the two, um, with the gay couple that comes and visits her at the uh, stage door every night. And I won't spoil it beyond that, but there are some really beautiful moments in it. So I enjoyed it. And I think, I think she'd probably win best actress. Don't you? Well, yeah, we, yeah, we went deep on best actress last week and kind of talked about how it's like, even though Renee Zellweger winning a second Oscar doesn't feel like some preordained narrative. It just doesn't feel like there's anyone in the race against her right now. There's a lot of other people with good performances, but her narrative is so strong. I will say until I see little women. Yes. Sure. Um, and then it's possible that Saoirse Ronan just, you know, uh, blows everything out of the water. But um, right now, I mean, yeah. And let's do it. And I'd be so happy to do it. Because otherwise, in terms of performances lying in wait, there's really just Charlize Theron and Bombshell Maybe, if that's actually a lead role. And she also has a, an Oscar already. So it's a, a similar thing for her. 
Well, and Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story, I don't think should be entirely counted out, but I think that feels like a nomination, you know, maybe more than a than a win. I, it would I, be her first nomination, which is crazy. Yeah. And she's, I mean, I think she's spectacular in it. And there are those, again, those kind of, you know, I jokingly talk about the ugly cry moment. You have to have at least one to be nominated. And, you know, that, that kind of emotional ups and downs and intense experience is in that, is in that performance. So I, I wouldn't count her out. But I think, I think there is a, I mean, and Renee is on the screen the entire movie, basically. And, you know, there's a lot of dwelling on her face and this, there is a certain amount of transformation. So I think, I think it's a, it's a great performance and, uh, and I, I enjoyed it. It's better than I was led to believe. So you feel like even if you someone might be able to go into the movie and being like, oh, Renee Zellweger, like she's fine. She already has an Oscar. She doesn't need it. That the, the performance itself is persuasive enough that people are going to get on board just seeing what she can do with it. I think so. I mean, again, you know, maybe other people will be less loving the the film less than I did. Um, again, I, I thought it was I thought it was good. I didn't think it was an, a, like perfect film, but I thought it was good. And you know, I just I mentioned my mom, but my aunt wrote this great thing. I think I sent you guys on Facebook yes. um, just about this the incredible emotional experience she had uh, watching it and what an icon uh, Judy Garland was. And I, I think she said she went to her funeral with her mother and her sisters. Like we, we also, you know, for a certain um, generation, like Judy was a humongous icon. And I think they did a great job of also paying tribute to to her gay fan base, again, with that, that kind of subplot with this couple. Um, so I think they did a lot of things right, and I think they will have a big constituency, uh, the film and, and her performance. And even if even if uh, other people don't like Judy as much as you did, Mike, there is, um, or the film itself, there is this narrative around it already that I think is true also around the Joker um, and was true around Rami Malek and Bohemian Rhapsody, which is sort of like, the movie's not our favorite, but we, but this performance, wow, you know, and that almost being a, a great performance in a, a, an okay or problematic movie or whatever, sometimes has more power possibly than just being a great performance in a great movie where everything around you is amazing. You don't have a chance to like stick out in the same way, but that's, that's, you know, when people walk out of Judy or walk out of the Joker, I feel like they're, they keep saying, I didn't like the movie, but wow, Joaquin, or I didn't like the movie, but wow, Renee, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, the only danger there is it reminds me of, um, of Glenn Close on The Wife last year, right? Where people were sort of like, all right, you, you, you're you going to have to sort of force yourself to watch this movie because Glenn Close is going to win this Oscar. And and she didn't win the Oscar. Uh, and, yeah. you know, and, and Olivia Coleman came in in the end for a movie that I think more people found interesting in general. Um, but I don't think this movie is... I, I think this movie is better than The Wife and, and more watchable. You know, The Wife is good, but I think that this one... This one has more of a real audience and fan base. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about this last week that like it's already more watched than The Wife yes. in terms of like box office and stuff like that. Um, and the other thing, you know, that I meant to mention when you were talking about Scarlett Johansson is like, I just I'm so curious. To see, I just have big question marks around these Netflix films, uh, the Mar Marriage Story, which I think is one of the like definitely one of the best films of the year. Irishman, which I'm seeing tomorrow, I think, um, or no, tonight. Um, you know, these Netflix films that are so maybe good or at least critically adored, how will they land 
with a wider audience and does it matter? You know what I mean? I'm just, I'm so curious, endlessly curious about this like Netflix wild card of like, does it matter that a lot of people will view these movies at home? Does that matter? You know? Just to jump in, you said it has already been more widely seen than The Wife. It currently is $0.6 million behind the gross of The Wife. Uh, but oh, that I'm was sorry. after The Wife That was after the wife had been in theaters for months and months and months and months, and Judy's been out for two weeks. So it will have no trouble eclipsing that. It's already made more than The Goldfinch. It had a big <laughs> opening. It opened big. Again, because yeah, it, they, they, I think they correctly targeted, you know, there, there is an audience for this. It's not necessarily zillions of people. Um, but especially people of a certain age, like she was a huge icon and, and they did it, you know, they did it well enough. Uh, I also, I guess I'm, I like these, um, music biopics when they're done well, you know, I, I feel like music biopics are like my superhero movie where I can just, I don't mind that, that they're all basically the same thing. Um, they're your theme park ride, <laughs> yeah. to use Martin Scorsese's terms. <laughs> And I like that they they did a twist on it. They didn't bother trying to do the entire her entire life story. It's funny we were talking to some people at Sony Pictures Classics yesterday and comparing it to Stan and Ollie from last year because um, it's a similar sort of setup where it's like okay, uh, you know, slightly over the hill Hollywood celebrities go to England to try to cash in one last time. It's an interesting setup, and I think the flashbacks work really well. You know, you really feel for for this for for Judy uh, watching it. So I don't know. I, I thought it was pretty good. I will maybe doubly break my heart. I'm already like half heartbroken that Rami Malek has an Oscar for Bohemian Rhapsody, but Taron Egerton probably won't even get a nomination for Rocket Man. But <laughs> this is our weekly Taron Egerton <laughs> moment, by the way. But it's contractually Rick- obligated. <laughs> <laughs> this episode brought to you by Rocket Man. No, but like if Renee wins for Judy, which I have no problem with, it's just sort of like Taryn's like, come on, guys. I sang I every note. Like, come on. You <laughs> know, the costumes. <laughs> what do I got to do? Anyway. Yeah. yeah. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so from Judy to Joker, which uh, are two movies <laughs> two that different seem, fan bases, fairly two different. different fan bases, uh, two different uh, Oscar acting contenders. There's something in common there, even if the movies are nothing like. Brad Easton Ellis would have you believe they are the same character. So you know. <laughs> oh uh, yes, I saw that. Wow. I'm so glad his Oscar punditry is back. Um, it feels like we've been talking about Joker forever, even though it just opened in theaters. Like the, It's been going on since Venice when it won the Golden Lion, and then also the discourse has just been so overwhelming. Um, Mike, sounds like you saw it last night. I saw it on Friday when it opened. We all kind of caught up to it, mostly when everybody else caught up to it. Um, going into Joker after what felt like endless hype, Like, what did you guys get the movie that you expected from Joker? I will say for me, I think a lot of the blowback actually helped me enjoy it um, because 
my expectations. I was trying to, I was trying really hard to go in and just make my own uh, judgment on what the film was, but it felt impossible with all the discussion around it. And given how many people sort of considered, decided to consider the Joker the worst thing that's ever happened to cinema that puts my <laughs> expectations in the basement. And I, I think I liked it better than most people did. Um, I see a lot. I understand the criticisms. I, I see where they're coming from. And certainly some of the comments from some of the people making the film haven't instilled a lot of confidence in me after the fact that they intentionally knew exactly what they were doing here. But I think the impact on me I, I, I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. The Joker. <laughs> I kind of liked it. I kind of liked it. Yeah. I, I think I actually went in wanting to like it, frankly. Just sometimes I want to like, I think I wanted to sort of mentally prove wrong all the people who were complaining about it. Um, so I don't know what kind of a bias that ends up being. But uh, my big takeaway is that this A.O. Scott article about how it didn't have any ideas um, really seemed incredibly wrong um, and either misguided or, or willfully something or other because it does have ideas. The ideas are, are, are disturbing. I think they're very relevant for right now. First of all, I think there is a debate to be had about what is he really saying. It seems to be trying to take on something that's happening in our world. Part of it has to do with mass shooters and the alienation that could lead to that and trying to understand how that would work. Part of it has to do with the rise of sort of mob behaviors, which I think if my interpretation of the film is correct, he sees as a thing that happens, you know, on both sides and is generally not great when it happens, no matter, no matter who's starting it. Because on the one hand, you can say, well, this is a sort of Trumpian character who creates a cult of personality. And on the other hand, I think you could definitely say that these, you know, mob people who are saying they want to kill all the rich are, you know, a stand in for SJWs. And I think you could you could say, well, fuck you. I don't like that point of view. But it would be really dumb to say that there's no ideas and that the that the movie's not kind of trying to grapple with with where we live. And and what worries me is the people who are like, oh, there's no ideas in this might be so obtuse about the world we're living in that they're not going to be very helpful in helping us figure it all out. So hmm. um, but, uh, you know, it's dark as hell. Um, yeah. But I also think it's just snobby to be like, well, we all can, you know, understand um, the nihilism of succession and digest it. But uh, but let's not have these incel slobs, you know, be watching their uh, alienation movies. Like, I think we have learned a lot of disturbing lessons about how messages affect people. But on the other hand, it just never it doesn't age well, like Tipper Gore, that whole that stuff didn't age well. Um, you know, my friend was saying, I remember when they said do the right thing was going to cause race riots. But I don't know. It's certainly deeply disturbing. And I could certainly imagine someone taking it the wrong way. But I also think people are kind of everyone should just sort of check themselves a little bit. I, I feel like it was it, that's part of the critique of the movie is that that snobbishness is not helpful and it pisses people off and it creates bad situations. So um, I thought it was really interesting and 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 well done. And, and I thought it was <laughs> cinema. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm with you that it has ideas. I'm just not sure that it's 
getting any of them across coherently. Like you talk about how it's maybe arguing that like mob mentality exists on both sides and it's like not one single thing that's poisoning our culture, but it feels like it's incorporating so many different signifiers of real world problems from like, you know, isolated young men to like the mobs of people like the Occupy Wall Street mobs trying to like take on the rich to like this celebrity fixation he has with this talk show host and the way that he has mental illness that's maybe misunderstood, but also there's like child abuse in there. And then you have like the Batman myth and it's, it's, taking on so much that does feel ambitious and like the way the movie is produced it's very beautiful it's like well crafted there's like incredible performance things going on that we can get into but I don't know that I felt like it added up to anything like the infusion in there about what it means other than that like society is poisoned felt muddled to me and then like I know you're right Mike that like making a big deal about its potential to incite real world violence is probably overblown but the fact that in this time when we do have all of these loners who believe that they've been misled by society, who look up to pop culture, could see this and see themselves in the Joker. It just like, if, if we're going to have to make a standalone Joker movie in this year, why did it have to be this one? It just, it's like, it's hard to get that thought out of my head, even as I think the movie is doing things beyond, you know, if you are an isolated young man, you're right to be mad. Do yeah. you, do you feel like the, um, you, so you feel like the film is asking you to have sympathy, like, unchecked sympathy for this character. I don't know about unchecked sympathy, but it's definitely asking you to get inside of his head and to like see the process that would lead someone like this to turn against society. And I think I think some other people have rightly pointed out that there are moments where you can imagine him doing something that you as the audience might find unforgivable and it walks away from that. I think particularly the way it has Zazie Beetz's character kind of there and you imagine all of the worst versions of what this like mentally ill loner might do about a woman who rejects him, which has happened many times in real life. And it backs away from what might actually be the logical thing that a story would do. Um, I think because it wants you to be able to see this moment of triumph he has at the end, not to spoil it too much, but uh, and not be totally repulsed by him. Well, that's interesting. I, I actually wasn't sure what happened there. If, I guess we're getting into spoilers. So, I, yeah. I, but but I think there is, there's a lot of stuff that's ambiguous. I would agree. Look, and, and the number one reason to feel very free to criticize this thing and say um, that it, it maybe is irresponsible is the fact that it's a gigantic studio movie that, you know, was made for hundreds of millions of dollars and is making hundreds of millions of dollars. This is not Martin Scorsese. Punching down. <laughs> you know, yeah, this is not Scorsese and De Niro punching up with Taxi Driver uh, 40 yes, years ago. Yeah. It's, a, it's a different context. Um, and the fact that Taxi Driver already exists, I think, makes you have to look at this and mean like, okay, we had this story about a disaffected young man inciting violence 40 years ago. What is this version saying that's new? Yeah. Well, but that, but is it is it a delivery system that, I mean, like, giving... Which I don't know if they deserve, but giving the filmmakers full benefit of the doubt, is an angry young man more likely to watch Taxi Driver, uh, you know, a forty-year-old film, or go see the latest comic book movie? Sure. And if they go see the latest comic book movie, this one, um, I, I don't know. I just like I have to believe that the intention of the filmmakers was not to be like, yes, angry young men, we see you and we validate course, you yeah, and we support you. You know, I know, I know you're not saying that. I'm, right. I feel like some people are though, and like yeah. I just, um, you know, Todd Phillips didn't necessarily do himself any favors with some of the interviews he gave, and and including Joaquin, in Vanity Fair, we should say, the, yeah. The, the, <laughs> no, congratulations to us. 
you know, and then Joaquin, like, you never know. Like, that's Joaquin's whole thing is you just never know when he's performing in an interview or when he's not. So he, like, walks out of his interview with the Telegraph purportedly because he it never even occurred to him that people might have this interpretation of his character. And he comes back to his interview with the Telegraph and was like, did I scare you? Wow, I just never even thought of that. And I'm like, am I, am I supposed to take that at face value? I don't know. Was Joaquin doing a little, like little joke that he loves to do like I don't know so uh it's hard to nail down the intentions of this film and maybe intentions don't matter when as Katie says the delivery of them is is so muddled well yeah I mean I guess that's that is an interesting argument that that you know you're playing with fire here and if you do it clumsily you know things can go horribly wrong um on the other side of it, I would say it's not a dissertation, right? And mm-hmm. and I think this is an audience that does not want to be preached to. And obviously it's resonating with an audience, right? So I think it's arguably okay for it to evoke a bunch of the crazy dark stuff that's happening in our world, as long as it does so authentically at some level. And, you know, I guess the other thing I would say about the sort of like major epidemic we have of shootings is if we do have an epidemic of shootings by alienated weird like sad loners we should probably talk about it in a lot of different contexts and try and figure out what the hell is going on you know rather than shy away from it so so i mean i think that that's why this is the right joker movie for 2019 arguably um and 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 i think but but you know i i don't know again i was kind of inclined i think i was in there watching it looking for reasons to to argue against the critiques that I had heard so overwhelmingly in my feeds. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think, you know, the other thing that kept coming to mind is like, this is a graphic novel. You know, this is, this reminds me of some of my favorite graphic novels, which are incredibly dark and very morally nebulous and do not have clear answers. And are basically often the, the, the message of them is like, things are super fucked up and we have no idea how they could ever be better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know? So, I mean, it's, it's authentically that I think. Um, and, and yeah. so, you know, but, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's so like, we're having a good argument about it. So I think A.O. Scott is totally wrong uh, <laughs> at, at the very least. I think maybe where the muddle really leaves me hanging is that it's, you know, you've got this character, you've got this story of someone who, you know, is going to become a supervillain. He's like one of the most famous villains who exists. And in the most famous recent version, the Heath Leather version is like deliberately mysterious. He's like a force of nature. There is no motivation to the things that he's doing. And this one is taking such a different tack of like, how does this person go from being a relatively capable member of society to being the Joker? And it feels like such a track that you're set on where you're going to watch someone turn into a villain. And it's like, oh, is he going to get rejected by a woman? Yes. Is he going to find out a dark secret from his past? Yes. Yes. Is he going to interact with like the family of Batman? And it just feels like, and then he goes later in the, later in the show, he interacts with Robert De Niro's character. And like that interaction kind of plays up being like, Oh, that's what I thought was going to happen when this entire scene began. It feels very deliberate in that way. And I like, I don't want to call it boring because I feel like that's so dismissive, but it feels like stepping into this, like very effectively rendered CD world and like marinating there and watching the story play out pretty much how you would expect. And I think aside from some performance choices from Joaquin Phoenix, which again, I want to talk more about, it just feels expected in that way. So it's it's thoughtful, but it's not thought provoking or surprising in the ways that I wanted it to be. Mm. Yeah, but I guess I might argue that, you know, the original Greek tragedies were function that way too. You know from the first lines what's going to happen, and then sure. you're you're subjected to the horror of seeing it play out. You know, so I think that I mean, I love a, Titanic, and I knew that boat was going to sink. So. Yeah, I mean, this there is, is a valid, you know, um, um, th- that that is, I think, a valid narrative uh, way to go. But um, 
but yeah, you're right. I mean, I mean, it's it's brutally grim, and some of the people are just like it's just unrelentingly grim. I think that's part of it. Is like you're not. <laughs> it's basically like strap in and watch this fiasco unfold. Remember uh, when we thought the Nolan Batman movies were too grim? Uh huh. Okay. <laughs> I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new a translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm oh. really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> First of all, I need to circle back and say, Katie Rich, that is some Jared Leto erasure. Uh, I, I said the your... most significant version, <laughs> not the only one. Uh, secondly, yeah, well, then let's talk about Joaquin and say, like, okay, uh, you know, it would be easier to brush aside this film entirely were it not for the performance that Joaquin delivers. It reminds me so much. I mean, that creeping dread is, is but better done, is what I felt uh, watching The Master all the way through. Mm-hmm. And this is just like, I love watching Joaquin Phoenix play creeps so that's one of my favorite things to see on on film so uh you know what do we think of this performance is it enough to rise above the fair or unfair critiques of the film itself he's so disturbingly weird I I really came out just being like Joaquin must be a a truly strange individual (laughs) (laughs) I mean our cover story really bore that out I think (laughs) I thought about the master too Joanna and like the way that he's like delving into this like really like feral kind of ununderstandable creature Um, but I felt like a lot of what the performance did it it volleyed back and forth so that I felt like I lost track of who the character was and I would say that's more in the direction than in the acting like he's got this moments where he's like so unstable that he like scares children on the bus and he can't like be in society but he also seems to be like a pretty decent clown and like sort of get along with his co-workers who then maybe it's implied later have turned against him and then as he kind of steps into his joker self he has this like charismatic villain thing going for him like the you know the famous shot of him dancing on the stairs and it's kind of hard to tell where that has come out of his personality and it made me think about the master and how much I wish he had a character on the level of not you know don't have to have Philip Seymour Hoffman doing one of his best ever performances but some other character to connect with um, and not have it be so thoroughly within his performance because it felt like Todd Phillips is watching Joaquin Phoenix do all of this stuff and he is determining the tone of the movie but because that character is so off the wall there's not really a grounding force to help you understand where he's going with it and I felt like I lost track of who Arthur or Joker was by the time the movie ended well I think again I guess we're spoiling here um so yeah I'll sorry just put that, I, it, the movie's out but yes yeah, sorry I'll put about that spoilers. out there but my interpretation was that and, and he says something about like you always told me my laugh was a condition and, and and I think what he what is happening with the character, which is disturbing, is basically he's saying, like, I'm evil 
and I try to be good. And now that I've tapped into my evil, I feel much more comfortable and suddenly I'm at home in the world and everything's great. And that is that is the difference between the awkward, shambly, miserable Arthur and the kind of, you know, dancing, uh, flourishing, self-actualizing Joker, which is an, a very alarming thing to sort of posit uh, and, and suggest that there's like a, a reality to evil that we would like to not think when we think, oh, like an evil person is someone who's like misunderstood or got, like like in some ways the movie doesn't let him off the hook. It's like, oh, this guy actually was just beaten up enough by life to discover his true self, and that self is evil, mm-hmm. you know, um, which I think is interesting. But anyway, and so I, I I felt that Joaquin actually effectively, you know, got something along those lines across, and, and that, that the awkwardness matched with, yeah, but all of a sudden toward the end, you're like, wow, this guy's so graceful, it's sort of beautiful to watch him, which is disturbing. His um, dancing is incredible. Like, his, his whole, phys- all his physical movements are amazing to watch. Yeah, and 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 his body, I mean, the 40 pounds thing, you know, it's a cla- it's a very Oscar cliche, but like, when you lose 40 pounds for a movie, that's a good way to win an Oscar. Um, Christian, <laughs> Christian, Christian Bale's like, oi, mate, that's my that's my thing. Uh, but, uh, Katie Rich, if your if your thesis is that the Joker could have used a Philip Seymour Hoffman performance in it, I don't know if I can argue. Against yeah, that. I mean, again, like like bringing a bringing a ringer, but yes, some kind of foil is what I think I wanted. Yeah, I, yeah, something for perhaps him to a sort Batman. Of, for, yeah, something for him to bump off against a bit more. I I would agree with that. Yeah, I just, I, you know, I, I don't know if the bad press around this movie, I mean, I don't know, it's hard to say bad press when it just made so much money, but like, I don't know if the fraught critical conversation around this movie, uh, you know, will put the brakes on Joaquin's best actor chances, but, um, and I don't know what a Joaquin Phoenix Oscar campaign really truly looks like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't think he's going to play the game in any way. He just gives weird interviews and he loves them and I love watching them, but like, I don't know if the Academy does, but, um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious how it will stand up against something like Adam Driver, who seems like the other front runner in the category without all of the baggage. And De Niro. But, but actually how interesting will it be if it ends up being Joaquin, Adam Driver and De Niro, like, are any of those guys going to go to a single event or give a single <laughs> like interview? Like, the most intense methody act. Can you imagine that round table of them, like, talking about their process, being like, well, I was locked in a room for a week. Like, I lost 40 pounds. Like, they're, right. I don't three of them are so like, intense. This asshole wouldn't even do a table read. <laughs> you going to give him an Oscar? I want to meet, meet Adam Driver's agent because his agent somehow, or, you know, whoever draws up his contract, somehow got him out of, like, almost every single Star Wars appearance. Like, the rest of the cast shows up for all the things that I'm drivers like nah eh, not for me <laughs> yeah you forget that he's got a huge Star Wars movie opening in the middle of all of this which like I don't even know what impact that has on any of this but uh he'll be very visible on screens at least I, I was I will say that I was starting to think with all this sort of negative um discourse as we keep saying around Joker that Joaquin would probably you know, be out of it and that De Niro or, or driver would come in. But I don't know, man, that perform it is, it is a compelling performance. Mm-hmm. I think that, and, and I think you could, you could imagine as with Judy, people being like, well, I don't know about that film, but holy cow, like that Joaquin he yeah. really brings it, you know? Um, and, and he didn't and, write the script, obviously. <laughs> Something we've learned over and over uh, as we keep doing the show uh, is that I think there are uh, more people in the Academy who share Mike's initial attitude, which is like, 
I'm going to obstinately ignore the critiques that are happening around. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Not they don't ignore, want to be told but what to like, think. No. Yeah. And they're not really on Twitter, most of them. Yes. Yeah. Well, so. we um, Scott Feinberg did one of his patented, like, call up a bunch of Academy members to talk about uh, what they think of Joker. Um, and just the, the wide range of responses is pretty incredible from people who, like, thought the movie is genius to thought it was, like, incredibly irresponsible and bad. But almost all of them say, well, Joaquin Phoenix. Like, they all come back around to that. And I think yeah. that more than anything has convinced me in a way that I wasn't late last week that he's going to stick around um, as a like, best actor contender no matter what else happens with the movie. I think that's absolutely true, and I think it really depends how Marriage Story lands. Do you know? Once yeah. again. Um, but in, and, I mean, I don't know if we want to, like, switch officially into talking about Best Actor, but, like, you know, uh, there's also Antonio Banderas to consider Christian Bale not losing 40 pounds, but doing, you know, there's, there's, there's some other folks to talk about here. Um, yeah, but, and Banderas, yeah. that's a real transformation that he, that he does um, in that film, which, again, is, you know, can be helpful. Although I think he's, you know, at this point, I think... It, it would be wonderful for to have a nomination given how crowded this thing is. I, I don't really see him winning, but, um, but I, I think he's certainly in the mix for a nod. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this a couple times and we keep mentioning Taron Edgerton, like the best actor field could easily be 15 people. Like I have like legitimately worthy, uh, performances to fit in there it's a it's a real wealth that we haven't seen in a couple years which makes i don't know like i kept i said i feel like joaquin will definitely be in there who knows like there's many more months to go and like other less controversial movies to pick from like even eddie murphy and dolman is my name like that's a more likable movie he's a you know famously difficult movie star but um you know that campaign is probably just beginning yeah, I mean, Andy Murphy's hosting SNL for the first time, like, in decades, decades since he left the show, right? Right. So that, to me, uh, shows a, a performer very willing to play the game to try to get the Oscar. You know, so it's, it's going to be interesting to see these performers who are great and don't want to play the game and these performers who are great and do want to play the game and, and what that means in the long run, you know? Yeah, I mean, among people who have never been nominated, Jonathan Price is in there for The Two Popes, which I keep telling everybody I think we're all sleeping on. That movie is really fun, and I think it's going to play really well. Yeah. Uh, Adam Sandler's never been nominated. Antonio Banderas has never been nominated. Taron Anderson, again, never been nominated. Robert Pattinson in The Lighthouse. Um, there's just a lot, of, uh, a lot of narrative to glom onto. Yeah, people are interested in The Lighthouse. It keeps coming up, um, and I think it has that kind of I, – I, I haven't seen it. Um, and obviously, I, as far as I know, is very different from the artist, but it has that kind of thing that the artists have where it's sort of like, you got to see it, you know? It's mm. like a black and white thing that's totally different from everything else. Um, and that sort of novelty <laughs> factor can can draw people in. It's true. It's the Lighthouse is so deeply weird. Like when it's I saw so it, weird. I could not believe how weird it was. <laughs> like like if, you think, if you think Joaquin Phoenix, watching Joaquin Phoenix the Joker is like unsettling, I, I, <laughs> may I introduce you to The Lighthouse? <laughs> but at least The Lighthouse is also funny, like in its weird, dark way. Kind of. I don't know. I just got like, I, I've, I, I don't know if I said this already on the podcast, but like I got nauseous because like the crashing wave sound plus them like drinking kerosene. I was just like, I can't. I can't. <laughs> Well, that also just take, can we just, can I just whack at this thing one more time? The notion yeah. that like, you know, this one movie is going to pollute the culture. Like, has anyone looked at the goddamn culture lately? Like every, you know, I mean, give me a break. There, we, we live in an incredibly <laughs> toxic culture. 
Well, in the, you know, the last couple of years, I feel like we keep talking about movies that like say X thing about the Trump era and something that The Shape of Water and Three Billboards and Green Book all have in common, I think, is just like this idea of taking on race in a way or taking on, you know, otherness or something and kind of making it a metaphor and making it more of like an individual story that that provides a way through some of the things that yes. are challenging us. And I can't totally figure out what this year's version of that is going to be. I feel like the narrative might change finally for like for the first time in the Trump era. Well, actually, that you know, coming back to this question of like, what is cinema? And you think about Jojo <laughs> Rabbit winning, um, winning the Toronto audience award. And you think about Joker doing so well. And, and one of the things that I think disturbs people, especially progressives who want to be like, no, we just need to clearly state that certain things are bad. And I think cinema doesn't really work that way. Cinema is constantly trying to figure out, all right, what is the human, you know, what's the human motivation here? How is How did this person come to this place that we agree is not good? Uh, and in Jojo Rabbit, I, I, I didn't love it because I felt like it was too sort of um, sort of silly the way that it was all handled and, and the consequences yeah. were too far out of sight. Um, this one, you can't argue that at least. Um, but I think that, that at the end of the day, like that's what movies are going to keep doing um, and whether, you know, whether progressive critics like it or not. <laughs> As a progressive critic, um, I <laughs> I will say that what I love about the Joker, not I don't know, love what I what I what I appreciate about the Joker, is that you know for all of Scorsese's like you know and we keep alluding to this right, but Scorsese had this interview where he talked about how he doesn't like Marvel films, they're not for him, they're not cinema, they're theme parks or whatever, um, and and then people like retreated to their tribalistic corners, were like, uh, you know, how dare you on a, on either side? And it was such nonsense to watch, but. But um, what I appreciate about Joker is, you know, if we are in an era where it's so hard to get anything made that doesn't feature a superhero, I am at least appreciative of Todd Phillips, like, making this film and trying to do something weird and interesting and, you know, to his mind, thoughtful uh, with the genre. Not to say that, like, you know, Marvel isn't. It does in its own way. Not to say that these other films aren't. But, like, this is like, okay, if we have to filter everything through the lens of comic book film, because that's the only thing that gets butts in seats, (laughs) maybe, maybe let's do this. Maybe let's do something else. I mean, like that's that's what they keep saying. Like the 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 Marvel filmmakers, they're like, it's like the Western, and you can make anything in a comic book movie. And I feel like the Joker is really testing the boundaries of that, right? Because you could have easily made this movie without the clown makeup, right? And that's what the movie is. Um, but it made this much money. This many people saw this disturbing story of this uh, disturbed man because it had the Joker branding on it. And so, um, I don't know, that's something I personally would like to see more of, not necessarily from Todd Phillips, but from, you know, other people. So, yeah. The Oscars are kind of famous for looking at superhero movies and being like, no thanks. Like, well, they kind of being the Martin Scorsese's of the world is, I think this is right, that Heath Ledger in The Dark Knight remains the only superhero movie performance to be nominated. Um, and I think Joaquin Phoenix will probably break that. But I do wonder about how much Joker, as much as everybody wants to talk about, I feel like there still have to be a, cer- a solid number of Academy members and not just like the old, like stereotypical people we think of, but like international voters who like aren't that invested in it, who are going to say no. Like we want our our original movies to actually be original, and this isn't for us. Yeah, and I also think that this that this debate will scare people. Like the same way that Do the Right Thing didn't get nominated, um, you know, I, I think uh, I think that 
that there are people who are going to think, well, like as it said in Scott Feinberg's thing, it's irresponsible, um, mm-hmm. which which maybe it is, but it certainly that will be a factor in scaring people off or giving them a reason not to put it down. Maybe, but like you know, Green Book. I, I don't know. Like you know, like uh, Green Book is different kind of uh inspired a different kind of pushback but it's still like one of those things where i just feel like i keep needing to relearn the lesson of like the academy doesn't care is not twitter what yeah, we but find but objectionable but is, you know green, but green book, book is, is the kind of movie that they nominate all the time and joker is not yeah, yeah green book right. is a soft chewy center triumph of the human spirit and it did that clumsily, so it got beat up for that. This one is like misanthropic nihilism that's probably more accurate for our times. And, you know, the Academy doesn't necessarily love that. Maybe the Mr. Rogers movie is what's going to come in and, and change <laughs> this narrative once and for all and teach us how to be good to each other. Maybe it should be Hustlers. <laughs> there you go. Oh, God. Yeah. Bring back the Hustlers bandwagon. Um, well, like, if you guys had to bet right now, would you say Joker could get non- nominated for Best Picture? Yes. I think it could. I mean, I think it could. Ten is a lot, you know? Yeah, it's between five and ten. But yes, could be ten. I think I'd say no. I think I'd probably say it doesn't make it in the end. Um, But but that Joaquin definitely does. I think so. I think I would would bet yes on Joaquin and no on, and like maybe, and like some technical stuff and, you know, who knows what's going to happen from here, but the no for best picture. That's, that's my bold prediction. If I had to predict, I would say, I would say, I would agree with you. But I think that Joaquin will could, could very well win. Yeah. So yeah, I wanted to like pivot more. Like we've been talking about Best Actor a good bit. Like I still feel like it's him and Adam Driver mostly. Like I haven't seen The Irishman, so I don't know what factor that might wind up being. But um, where where are you guys feeling there? Uh, I hear it's great. I have not seen it, um, but uh, who knows? I mean, right? There's there's this festival fever aspect to this. All these people who got up at seven in the morning and d- didn't want to feel like they wasted their Sunday or whatever. <laughs> so I think we need more people to see it. But it sounds like it was good. I completely agree. Like when I saw that, I don't know, outsized praise for it on Twitter and a bunch a bunch of film bros, as I lovingly call them, <laughs> uh, you know, were just like, uh, never doubt Scorsese again. You know, like all this sort of like deeply disturbing Marvel DC comic esque tribalism. Uh, you know, it, it's, <laughs> I was just like, I was like, okay, let's just wait and see. Like, I remember, I remember that Selma screening where you guys were like, well, that's mm-hmm. it. Selma best picture. So like, that's what I always think of when I see something like that, but we'll yep. see, we'll see what I say. I mean, I, it definitely made me that, uh, maybe outsized high praise or, or maybe accurate definitely ensured that I would go see it at, in the cinema rather than waiting to see it at home. Cause I was like, okay, I'll sit in the, I'll sit in the theater for three hours. If there's a promise of something transformative. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we'll I see. am worried about what happens if I went up having to see it on Netflix. Cause I haven't totally figured out when screenings will be made available to me. Cause it does feel like something that if you're watching it on Netflix, your attention isn't there. You're pausing it a couple times. It could really break the spell, um, which I don't know what that would say for its quality as a good or bad movie, but just in terms of like being able to engage with it on its own terms, it, it seems like, locking yourself in that theater for three and a half hours is the way to do it yeah it's it's yet again another like netflix movie that seems like the last place that you'd want to watch it is on netflix with all due respect (laughs) yeah pretty Uh, much but um but anyway i mean they're willing to plunk down for these incredibly ambitious things so that's good 
I think it's going to be, I mean, obviously there's so much goodwill around all these guys. I don't think the Scorsese comments about about uh, comic book movies is going to actually hurt him in any way with no. the Academy. I mean, if anything, a lot him. of people are just like, finally, somebody said it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so, you know, I yeah, you got you got this kind of it, it seems like in the abstract, um, it will be very formidable. Yeah, I feel like Scar says he is also doing a lot of like tearing down the walls on behalf of Netflix, like whether or not he thinks of it as doing that. But the way that they're like booking the Belasco Theater in Broadway on Broadway to like play the Irishman so you can see it in an old fashioned movie palace and then Netflix is footing the bill for that. Like they're doing a lot of kind of glossing themselves up as savers of cinema, which is something they've been working on doing since they started financing all of these, you know, really ambitious movies. But I, I'm curious about how it works for the distributors who are still the um, or the exi- the theater owners who are still the holdouts. Although every one of those moves is like one part, oh great, they're saving cinema, and one part like holy cow, these guys are just taking over the whole world. You yeah, know, and like, also they just have so much money to spend. Yeah, somebody was saying the other day, I guess they bought um, some uh, billboard company and they now own a hundred billboards all around yeah. LA, and no one else can use them. You know, it's like yeah. it's like uh-huh. there's this kind of ominous. <laughs> Feeling that's that's what I that's what I keep saying about Netflix. Netflix keeps uh, with love, love you Netflix. Uh, but they keep buying up like you know all the publicists, all the like what you know like it just feels like they're they're sucking all the air out of the room so no one else can like anyway. But that being said, Marriage Story, one of the best movies I've seen in a long yeah. time. So you know <laughs> they're financing amazing cinema, and I'm I'm really interested to see what I think of The Irishman. I've been so skeptical because of the. Uh, you know, the digital plastic surgery stuff um, on the actors. But uh, I've been told it won't bother me, but I don't know. I'm highly bothered by that kind of stuff. Um, what I think is kind of funny, I don't know if it matters, but my screening tonight, which is part of the Mill Valley Film Festival, starts at 6.30 because, you know, it has because to. It, yeah. Because it's a three and a half hour movie. So, you know. Are, That's very kind of them to uh, let you get to bed at a decent hour. Yeah, thanks, Mo Valley. But um, yeah, I, I am once again. I mean, we we were wondering if anyone would see Roma uh, if it came out on Netflix at home, and that didn't seem to matter in the long run in terms of the Oscars last year. So you know, well, and they 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 really did not have a great Emmys. Um, I I think it seems like really Irishman and Marriage Story are their two projects, so they should be able to handle that with all the resources they have and, at their disposal. And- Dolomite. Dolomite's getting Dolomite. push. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Dolomite played really well at Fantastic Fest, right? I can't remember if yeah. you saw it there, Joanna. Uh, it was a secret screening there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It played, it played really well, and didn't it played really well at TIFF, too, right? It yeah. did. Yeah, Mike yes. and I yeah. saw it uh, opening night there. I mean, it's a really good movie to see in a theater, yet another irony of movies on Netflix. Um, but that's another one that I feel like it's like it's kind of a slow burn. Like, it's not getting the raves that um, Marriage Story and Irishman have been getting, but it does feel like something that could have staying power. And also, I mean, like, they also have two popes, which Katie, uh, which is like Katie's first man this year. Lo- love, like those that. <laughs> love those popes. Love those popes. But, uh, but, you know, that's, once again, that's like four major, I mean, that's, that's a lot, you know? If Fox, I'm wrong about two popes, I will like maybe hang up my hat, like the way with first man. But like, I really feel like people are going to start seeing that movie more and more and, uh, and go for it. I mean, p- plant your flag. Mike, do you want to plant your flag on anything ridiculous like the two popes? <laughs> um... <laughs> What about Knives Out? What happened to Knives Out? Is it is it going to be in the mix or not? Joanna saw it at Fantastic Fest. 
I did, and I liked it a lot. Um, it's good, I think it's right? more of a yeah. I, I really like it. I think it's more of a like a crowd ple- like a populist crowd pleaser than it is yeah. an Oscar contender. Yeah, but I guess there's I not an obvious um, Oscar move, but I don't know. Maybe screenplay or something. Um, yeah, screenplay yeah. would be a great nomination it for would, that yeah. movie. It yeah. really would. Yeah. Yeah, I just at this point I just want people to go see it because again, like Tiff really had a lot of big, fun, crowd pleasing movies this year. Like a lot of things I was just glad to experience in a theater, and I hope that Knives Out gets people to go see it the way that we got to. Uh, that does it for this week's episode. Uh, we'll be back next week. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com, writing about so many things about the Oscar race and Joker and lots of other things. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, Joanna, Joe wrote this, and Mike, Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best title for the Four Year Consideration campaign we would happily run if someone paid us goes to Joanna Robinson. This episode brought to you by Rocketman. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.